And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and today is the two-part interview with science writer Wendy Williams. Her journalism has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Science Monitor, Scientific American, and many other August publications. She's written seven books to date, including about the resilience of cancer patients, the history of the horse, and today we'll be talking about her latest, The Language of Butterflies, How Thieves, Hoarders, Scientists, and Other Obsessives Unlock the Secrets of the World's Favorite Insect, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Wendy, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Your previous book was about the history of the horse. and I can see the beauty of horses and butterflies, how they would enchant people. But are there any other similarities that you can tie between these two fabulous creatures? You know, to me, all of us have a lot in common. We share life. You know, my book before that was uh, about an animal that swims in the ocean on Cape Cod where I live. The squid, a certain kind of squid that researchers studied in order to figure out how human neurons in the brain work. So it turns out that this squid, Lolligo, has a neuron in its body that's as thick as a pencil lip. Human neurons in the brain are so thin you can barely see them. But this one was so thick that the scientists 100 years ago could actually handle it. They didn't need those super powerful microscopes in order to see how that neuron worked. You know, what makes the neuron connect to another neuron in the brain and, and send those messages? They used this Lolligo squid out of the ocean to study that. And they found out some really interesting things. It turns out we have the same neurons. Horses have the same neurons. Butterflies have the same neurons. So I'm fascinated by those kinds of things that show the unity of life. It doesn't matter whether it's a squid in the ocean or a mammal, I'm partial to mammals particularly, or, or an insect. We all operate by very similar codes. So we have a lot more in common than we realize. And the theme of interconnectedness is very important in the book as well. Yes, I love that idea. I love the idea of nature's net. And the reason I have so many different people in all of my books, the horse book and the squid book, and, and here is that People are part of nature's net. You know, a lot of times nature is discussed as something that's different or out there or separate from us, not the same thing, something that we keep at arm's length. But in fact, that's not the case. We are part of nature's net. And that's what I wanted to show in these books, that we need all of these animals in our lives because we function better when they're around. Sometimes we can tell why. Sometimes we know, for example... Maybe they clean the air, the butterflies pollinate the beautiful flowers, the beautiful wildflowers around us. For a lot of other reasons that scientists are only discovering right now, it shows there's these more subtle ways in which we really need to have the natural world around us just in order to feel calm. You know, during this really difficult time, it's such a stressful time in our country. I'm 70 years old and I've never seen anything like this. One of the prescriptions that is being given to people is go out for a walk. Go and get some space, get some distance, be in the sunshine, you know, enjoy that sunshine and be part of that. And and that sunshine and and even a soft, gentle rain, if you have those, will help to bathe you and you'll feel calmer, you'll feel better. And the vitamin D definitely helps people's immunity as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my my next book is actually going to be a book about hiking, and I'm going to be writing a lot about that. You know, you're just healthier if you go outside for a walk. You're just going to feel better. You're going to be calmer. But you get a lot out of that 
simple exercise, and it doesn't have to be fast. Believe me, I drive people crazy because I go for a walk and I go step, step, because I'm dreaming about stuff and thinking about stuff. I don't walk very fast, but it's still beneficial to me to go out and do that. I've, since I've become more disciplined at it, I'm, I'm noticing that, for example, I breathe better. Using the parlance of the book, did you fall down the rabbit hole? I did. You know, that's a funny question to be asking me because I've been talking to a lot of people about that. People say, how did you come across the idea for this book? And the truth of the matter is it was kind of an accident. I meant to write a book about successful conservation stories around the planet. I'm really interested in that. We get a lot of negative news and I, I like news that's positive and enthusiastic. But the first thing that I looked at was a successful conservation project in upstate New York. And that project was centered around a small butterfly called the Carner Blue, only a couple of inches at most. But it was a butterfly that people wanted to save. It had all kind of an iconic history of it. A famous novelist from Russia loved this little butterfly where it flew in, in upstate New York. And they were going to build a shopping mall. And people said, no, we don't want a shopping mall. We want this little blue butterfly to be able to thrive. And of course, there was the big legal scene, you know, blah, 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 went through courts. And the court said, you must set aside this land for preservation. Didn't say you have to save the Carner Blue, but of course, that's what people wanted to do. But the court order said, you have to save this land for preservation. The funny thing is where they got the money from. Because when I went there, I said, this is beautiful. Where'd you get the money to do this? Well, right next to this area, is a giant mound. And when I say a giant mound, I mean really big. And it's called Mount Trashmore. That's because all these different towns and villages come to this area and pay to dump their trash there. So the judge said, you must save this land. You must revitalize this land. And in order to be able to do it, you're going to get all the profits from this Mount Trashmore. So the irony of it is just beautiful that people's plastic and detritus and all that stuff gets tossed in this big mound. And the money, the fees that they have to pay to do that go to the property next door, which is being intensively cared for with this money. So in, in this area, this tiny little butterfly that they wanted to preserve wasn't being preserved. No matter what they did for 20 years, nothing happened. The numbers of this butterfly continued to decline and continued to decline. Somewhere along the way, somebody got the bright idea to say, what if we start to burn this area? What if we take a little an acre here and an acre there and burn it the way that it used to happen naturally in nature before people started to live here? Because, of course, you can't have lightning fires when people are, are living. What if we do this in a careful, controlled way and see what happens? And lo and behold, when they did that, when they carefully controlled the burning in these tiny areas, the entire ecosystem revitalized. And along with that revitalization was this little carnivore blue butterfly, because the carnivore blue butterfly needed a certain kind of plant called a lupin, and the lupin didn't really grow well unless it was burned back. And the next year, it rose from the ashes like a phoenix. And when it rose from the ashes, then all of a sudden there were much greater numbers of blue butterflies. It's amazing that doing something that we would think would be beneficial, like preventing forest fires, was actually an important part of the natural process. It was. You know, it's a, it's a particular kind of ecosystem that's really, it's a sand dune ecosystem. You wouldn't think of sand dunes in upstate New York. 
But these particular areas are near rivers and during the ice age, these huge sand dunes built up and then the things grew on them. But before people were here, part of the rhythm of that ecosystem was that in the summer, it would get dry, there would be lightning, the lightning would ignite these tiny little brush fires and brush fires would just run through this area and burn everything back. So the things that lived there were the things that had already become adapted to living with fire, not just living with fire, but doing better when fire was there. That was a pretty neat discovery. So now they do it routinely, but of course it has to be done very carefully. It took a long time to get local people to accept the idea because who wants a fire in your backyard if you have a nice house? So they had to convince people that they could do that. And it's a very big deal. You know, they'll, they'll have a whole ring of people, firemen with hoses and all these things around these tiny little incremental areas that they routinely burn back. So the fires don't spread. They never spread, but they do burn back. And, you know, there are things like you might have a pine cone in that area that burns back. And when the fire happens to the pine cone, it opens up the pine cone and the pine cone can release seeds. So this whole system thrives on what was once a natural phenomenon that doesn't exist anymore, where people live, where people I remember when I was a child, my grandparents' neighbor, he would burn his yard every couple of years because he said it would grow back better. Uh-huh. Did he have his own yard out in the country or was it next door to your yard? Uh, it was just a couple of houses down from where my grandparents lived. They lived in a very small town. And it didn't worry people? No. Ah, well, he was right, wasn't he? <laughs> the ashes from that fire will make plants grow much more richly. We'll see up here in some of these areas, like where we live on Cape Cod, we definitely have a wet period and a dry period. We had all through this whole quarantine time, we had pouring rain. It was miserable. It was just pouring, pouring rain, too cold to go out, too wet to go out. And then all of a sudden, about two weeks ago, all the rain's gone. Now it's too dry and it's sunny. So that's when the fires would start here. One of the things I can be thankful for in reading your book is that I know how to correctly pronounce proboscis now. <laughs> yeah. What interesting things did you learn about the butterfly snouts? That's good. Shortcut word, snouts. Who knew? I started looking at this stuff, this proboscis or snout. And believe me, I did not intend to write an entire chapter about this. You know, it was supposed to be a drinking straw, just like the scientists said. We should tell your listeners that at the front of the butterfly head is a nourishment acquisition instrument <laughs> known as a proboscis if you're a professional or some people think of it as kind of a nose, but it isn't really a nose because it doesn't smell. But it's a coil that the butterfly carries in front of its head while it flies. And then when it lands on a surface and it wants to acquire nourishment, whether it's, you know, energy from a flower or maybe just something that's on the ground that it wants to acquire, it unfurls that curled instrument and it lays it on top of it or inserts it into the flower, something so that it can get at what it's looking for. And forever was thought of as similar to a drinking straw. You know, if you want something that's in the glass, you put your drinking straw in there and you slurp up all the Coke. So that's what people thought the butterfly was doing with this until only a few years ago. And only a few years ago, Somebody started looking at these butterfly snouts, these acquisition instruments, with these super powerful microscopes that make it so that you can see even the structure of tiny, tiny little butterfly scales. 
And they looked at the butterfly snouts and they said, holy smokes, this is unbelievable. There's a whole world there. It's not a straw at all. For one thing, they found out that there were actual holes in the proboscis. Think about that. It, it was sort of like holes in a flute. You wouldn't be able to put the end of a flute into water and sip up the liquid because there's holes all the way up there. So it won't work. That's exactly how a butterfly's straw proboscis now is structured so that there are holes all the way up. So the butterfly can't be sipping. But what is it actually doing? The scientists asked. And they finally discovered that what's happening is these holes that run along the tube are actually ways in which liquids can be absorbed into this instrument that appears like a straw. They are absorbed into that long tube and then absorbed up the tube into the butterfly's head where there is then a pump that pumps that nourishment out into the main body. So why do you want to know that for? I mean, how low is this more esoteric information that we don't need? No, actually, there's a lot of benefits to humans from knowing this because we have scientists now who are burdened with the task of trying to figure out how to move along tiny, tiny, incrementally minuscule bits of liquid in the human body, for example, during surgery. You would not be able to see them, but they're looking at how the butterflies do these things as a way of trying to design a similar kind of instrument that might be able to accomplish that during surgery. So there are very real reasons for people wanting to know this. One of the things that I love finding out in this book is that a lot of butterfly research now is done by people who are known as materials scientists or materials engineers. These are people who are trying to figure out new ways of doing all kinds of things on the mini micro level. And in order to accomplish these goals, they're looking to what nature has already figured out. Like, you know, why reinvent the wheel is the way these scientists think. You know, let's not start from square one. The butterfly and other animals have already figured this out. Let's see what they've figured out. They're doing what we would like to do. And let's study how they do it. Instead of starting at square one, we started square a thousand or a hundred thousand or something. So that's why they're studying these funny things. But we can have more reasons than just purely practical ones for wanting to study butterflies because, I mean, their beauty is one of the things that attracts us to them. Absolutely. I, for one, don't think we ever have to justify any kind of scientific research. I'm one of those people, as you mentioned, who just falls down the rabbit hole and I want to know more and more. What is this? How does this work? So I love just finding out things. And I love scientists because they love finding out things. We have a lot in common although their methods are different from mine. But yeah, we don't have to have a reason, but if people want a reason, you can't get research funding by saying, I think butterflies are pretty, and so I want <laughs> you to give me a million dollars. Otherwise, we'd all be getting a million dollars. So they have reasons. They have goals in mind when they ask for these grants, and a lot of times they achieve those goals. But for the rest of us, we just love butterflies because they're gorgeous. We just love looking at the different colors and the more closely we look, the more fascinated we become. How does the scientific name Lepidoptera for butterflies and moths tie into those beautiful wings? Well, because it's about scales. I think that's, I think that's what you mean. Mm -hmm. That, you know, uh, butterflies and moths, butterflies and moths are grouped together into Lepidoptera. 
that name signifies a being that has scales. What's most distinctive about butterflies and, and moss also, but butterflies, is that they have these scales. And the scales are, again, go down the rabbit hole. We take these colors for, of butterflies for granted. You know, I write at the beginning that I used to ride my horse through the fields and look at the butterflies and say, oh, isn't that pretty? And, and it was pretty. It was very nice to see. But I didn't really think anything of it. Some scientists have started really studying the colors of butterflies and the scales of butterflies. And again, because they're beautiful, but also because they need to find out new ways of finding ways to bend light. Bending light is a really important task in our computer-driven world and our electronic world. We want to find a way to send messages on the micro scale as quickly and efficiently as possible. And one way that we do that is by bending light. So it turns out that some of the best benders of light in our universe are butterflies and their scales. When we look at scales, at butterflies, we think, oh, you know, it's nice. These beautiful colors are somehow painted onto the butterfly. We, we don't really think about it very clearly, but we assume it's pigment, like the kind of pigment that you have in a painting, for example. You know, you, you work with blue pigments and green pigments. Well, a lot of times the scales on butterflies, the color doesn't come from pigments. The color comes from these scales' abilities to bend light. Some scientists in a lab near me where I live on Cape Cod are using super microscopes to see the structure of each of these scales. And I need to explain, first of all, a butterfly scale is a tiny, tiny thing, like a piece of dust, like a moat of dust. People who study butterflies often have to wear masks, much like we do right now today, often have to wear masks because they don't want to breathe in all the butterfly scales because they could give themselves some kind of breathing problem or even lung disease because the scales are so small. But when you look at them, there's a whole world inside this tiny little scale. One scientist has found out that there's a wonderful metallic blue that some butterflies take advantage of in their wings. That comes from a scale that, when you examine it closely, is shaped kind of like rows of Christmas trees. And the Christmas trees with their branches, the branches are not intertwined between the rows, but the rays of light get mixed up and bent and set back outwards so that it appears to us to be blue. But it doesn't always appear to us to be blue. Maybe right in front of our eyes, it appears to be blue. But as you fly further on, it might appear to be a little bit green or it might appear to be a little bit purple. So it changes. The best way to understand that is to think about bubbles. When you're out with your friends, because I'm sure we all love to do this, go out and blow bubbles into the air with our little bubble blowing sticks, our soap. Well, we love to do that because we see the changing colors in the, in the bubble. That's what the butterfly does. It changes colors. It bends light that way. Another way that you might have seen it is an oil sheen on the surface, maybe a pavement or a black macadam. Or even if you look into a pond of still water, you might see oil on the top of that water that bends light in this mysterious way. There's something about the human brain 
that just loves those color changes. We're just addicted to them. We just, I don't know, we look at it and we say, what is that? What is that? And, and just like a little child, you know, you put things above a baby's cradle, colorful, moving things above a baby's cradle in the hopes that the baby will develop muscular abilities by reaching up and, and reaching towards those colorful things. We never lose that fascination with color. We never lose that fascination with sunlight and with change. So even when we're 70 years old, like I am now, we will look at the color changes in a butterfly's wing and just be hypnotized, just hypnotized. I guess you could say we find iridescence irresistible. Yeah, that's good. Irresistance is, can I write that down and make a note of it? <laughs> iridescence is irresistible. But yes, it's true. It is, uh, for some reason, the way our brain is structured, we do see that. When we see that iridescence, we can't pass it up. And a blue butterfly is one of the, a couple of butterflies you take closer looks at, and it's the blue morpho. Tell us about this dazzler. You know, I love going to these butterfly tents, and I'm sure you have them in Tennessee. They're all over the place now, and you pay a couple of bucks, and you walk into an area where there's lots of plants, and there's lots of butterflies. And what I really like is there's also lots of kids, including toddlers, and it's just they see all these butterflies flying all over the place and the kids just have a wonderful time running around and looking at the colors and, and the adults do too. Although we try to hide it and pretend we're there for the kids. I don't, I just say I'm here because I want to see the butterflies, but a lot of adults, Oh, my child wants to see this. But in fact, we love seeing that. One of the most popular kinds of butterflies in those exhibits, if you haven't been to an exhibit like that, you ought to go is the blue morpho. The blue morpho is a biggish butterfly. I, I haven't really measured it, but I think it's maybe a little bit bigger than a monarch butterfly. And it's blue. The surface of its wings, if its wings are spread and you're looking down at it, the wings are blue. They appear blue. And let's imagine that it flies in front of you and it flies below your eyes and you're watching it. As it flies past you, it has that kind of iridescent blue that will change as it flies past you. One of my favorite stories was when I talked to a scientist at Yale who had been in a plane and he was flying over a part of the South American jungle, just above Butterfly Gate, I guess. And he looked down and he saw these, I'm not going to say they're clouds because they don't really fly close together, but this plethora of blue morphos flying underneath him. And he just looked at the glistening, the iridescence, if you will, of all these beautiful blue butterflies flying below him in the sunlight because the sun was out. He was pretty overwhelmed. When it lands and brings its wings up, it's camouflaged, isn't it? Yes. Then it becomes hidden. You can't find it. When a lot of butterflies, not all, but a lot of butterflies fold their wings, they might land somewhere on a plant or on a rock or even on some soil or something hidden in bushes because it doesn't want to be seen. And it folds its wings up. A lot of these butterflies look like they're just dead leaves. You know, the undersides of the wings often are browns and tans and dull grays. How boring can you get? Not, you know, nobody can take a second look. Those colors, by the way, do come from pigments usually. Those are not the iridescent glowing colors of the tops of the wings. Those are boring and brown and look much like dirt or leaves that are done. It, it's pretty amazing. Even when you, when you see one of those, even if you know what you're seeing, you have to really work with yourself to not suddenly decide, oh, that must be a dead leaf. So the undersides of the wings are camouflage, 
and the upper sides of the wings are iridescent. And as I describe in the book, it's almost as though the butterfly said, well, I have two strategies. I can hide and pretend I'm not here. That's one of my favorite strategies too. (laughs) I can pretend I'm not really here and nobody sees me. And if that doesn't work, then I'll burst out and I'll shock them with this razzle-dazzle, sudden sudden blooming of color. And, you know, whatever it is that's bothering the insect may will, will be stopped in its tracks. You know, often it really is stopped in its tracks and the butterfly will have just enough time to get away from the predator. So it's got these two different strategies. I can either hit them in the nozzle with this glorious color or I can pretend that I'm just a piece of dirt and you don't really see me. The blue morpho does bring its wings up to show its undersides, kind of like praying hands. But we learn that the rules of thumb of discerning a butterfly from a moth don't always hold. <laughs> yeah. You know, this was a really fun experience I had. I live on Cape Cod, which is about an hour and a half south of Boston. So one of the oldest and and most extensive collections of both fossils of butterflies and actual butterflies that were collected sometimes as long as uh, more than 100 years ago are up at Harvard. So I went up to visit with a young, a lovely person who showed me some of these collections. And she also brought out a tray of different insects and asked me the question, which is a butterfly and which is moth? So I used the rule of thumb that I had been taught. You know, moths are furry and and butterflies have long slender antenna with knobs on the end of them. And, you know, moths are dull brown and ugly and not very interesting. And butterflies are bright and beautiful and we all love them. So I used those rules of thumb when she would point at an insect. And every time she pointed at it, I was wrong because these rules of thumb that we've all been taught are often true, but not always true. Sometimes a butterfly will have an antenna that actually looks very much like a moth. Or one of the things that we're taught is that butterflies fly during the day and in the sunlight, and that's why we love them. And moths are these evil things that come out at night, eat up your sweaters and whatever, you know, annoy you when you have the lights on outside. So she pointed at one insect that I used my rules of thumb to decide was a butterfly. And actually it was a moth because there are always exceptions to the rule. And I talk about this one moth that I saw actually in my own butterfly garden. So I had actually been to Cuba the winter before to study Spanish, which was a great experience. And when I was down in Cuba, I was taking on a nature tour and shown this what I think may be the smallest bird in the world. It's called a bee hummingbird. And it's actually a bird, but it's about the size of a super large bee. Wow. It was just amazing to look at. You know, and I don't see very well anymore. So I had to really stare and stare before I agreed that, yeah, that really is a bird. So anyway, I was walking around, fast forward six months, in my own butterfly garden. And I looked at my butterfly plants and I thought, what is that? I looked at this thing that was hovering in front of one of the flowers, just like a hummingbird would. How in the world would one of these little bee hummingbirds have accidentally gotten all the way up here, all the way north to New England from Cuba? Is that even possible? And I kept looking at it and looking at it, and there's something that didn't sit quite right. And finally, I looked at it, and I realized it wasn't a hummingbird at all. It was an insect. And in fact, it turned out to be not a butterfly 
but it turned out to be a moth, mm. even though it was flying in sunlight and during a beautiful time of the day and, you know, right out there for everybody to see, it was called a hummingbird moth. And it looked just like a tiny hummingbird. If I hadn't seen the bee hummingbird, I wouldn't have been confused. But it really was a moth that had completely changed its form, completely changed its activity so that it could hover just like a hummingbird and did what the hummingbird would do, which is kind of hover in front of a flower and use its proboscis to try to get down into the depths of that flower. I don't know if I'm showing off or what, but for some reason, I know the word butterfly in three other languages. Oh, that is good. In Spanish, it's mariposa. Yes. In uh, French, it's papillon. Oh, that's true. And in uh, German, it's Schmetterling. That I did not know. Schmetterling? Schmetterling, yeah. Schmetterling. Do we know where the etymology of butterfly, how we got those two words together to talk about this creature? That's a really good question. And it's all I can say is it is lost in the midst of time. There are many, many, many stories about how we got that word ranging from the obvious, oh, they meant to say flutter by, but they got it backwards, so it's butterfly. People love that game. That was like my father. He used to say runny babbit. Right, right, right. That kind of game. So, you know, they meant flutter by, but it's actually butterfly. You know, Europe doesn't have as many butterflies as we do, as many species. So it might have come from the fact that there was a common species of butterfly there that might have gotten too close to the milk or too close to people churning butter. I don't really know. And nobody else knows either. Now, I will say there is one butterfly that I cannot stand at all. What? And that is the cabbage white. Hmm. Ruin my broccoli crop. <laughs> I was going to say, why don't you like that guy? <laughs> yeah. They're nice. They're pretty, but they're ruinous of what the caterpillars are. Yes, they do. See, that's what goes back to the old rule that we think butterflies are innocent and moths are bad. You know, the cabbage white is a butterfly, and yet it does get into the garden and cause problems. Another butterfly you pay attention to is the majestic one of the Western Hemisphere, the monarch. Why are so many people fascinated with this butterfly? I was really, really interested in the monarch, too. And, and again, there's very new recent research that, that I couldn't resist learning about and then writing about because I come from the generation where in, I think it was 1976, I think that was the year, National Geographic had a big cover story. At last, we've discovered where the monarchs go. Well, of course, we didn't discover them. The Mexicans always knew what the monarchs did, but us gringos north of the boundary thought it was a big mystery. But for those who don't know, monarch butterflies at the end of the summer, starting in late August, will begin to change their behavior. And during the summer, monarch butterflies don't really like each other very much. They stay away. They're individual. You know, they flutter by the different flowers that they're using for energy. And they're going to do their own thing and have a nice time. But at the end of the summer, they change. And when they change, for one thing, they will start to gather together in, in roosts on trees. Almost like, you know, crows or other kinds of birds that you might see. And they start to gather up in the roosts and eventually whatever sets them off, maybe it's the right winds suddenly come up. They take off together en masse and they start flying south. 
even if these are butterflies in Canada along the northern edge of the Great Lakes, they will suddenly, at some point, when the winds are right, when, when conditions are right, they will rise off those trees where they might have been staying for two or three days or four days or longer, waiting for the right conditions, and they start heading south. They fly all the way south, all the way through the central flyway, pretty much like the birds do. And then they fly all the way to the Mexican border and they cross the Mexican border and continue flying all the way south around the Mexico City area where suddenly they take a sharp right turn and head up into the mountains. And they find this small area in the mountains where customarily they have spent the winter for tens upon tens, maybe hundreds of years. Nobody knows for sure how long they've been doing that. And they will stay up there until about February when conditions become right again. And they leave their roosts there, come down onto the plains of Mexico and start flying back north. This was an amazing discovery in the 70s. No one could imagine that this would be true. First of all, nobody imagined that the monarch butterfly, which weighs really about the weight of a paperclip, could actually fly that far. This was proven through a lot of very citizen science-oriented research. It was proven that butterflies tagged up north did fly that far and then did stay in those trees. But how did they do it? That was the big question that everybody had. How did they do that? How did they figure out where to go? You know, we're kind of condescending to beings that don't have brains that are physically as large as ours. So how could something with a brain as tiny as the brain of a butterfly actually navigate all this complexity and end up in the right place? That was a big question. And it really, it, you know, it was a matter of great curiosity. And it turns out now that science has discovered some of how they do it. Not everything. There are still questions. You know, what is it that causes the butterflies? to suddenly make a right turn in Mexico and go up into the mountains? What inspires them to leave their southerly roots? We still don't know that. But we do know a lot more about how butterflies actually orient themselves to fly south. For one thing, it looks like, and there is some argument in science over this, but it looks like the butterflies that emerge in the late August as mature monarchs are built differently. They may have wings that are more aerodynamic. The wings may be a little bigger, and they have different tendencies. At that time of year, we've seen the summer butterflies and how they flit around, and they're kind of irresponsible, and we'd all like to be like that. But the migrating monarch is not irresponsible at all. The migrating monarch is really determined to go south. If you take that migrating monarch and try to make it fly in a different direction, it won't. It will just turn around and head back in that direction. That's how its neurology has arranged it. That's how it, it's now following cues that are based on the setting of the sun. The rising and the setting of the sun tells it what direction is south and it stays on that southwest, so a little bit a little bit west as well, southwesterly direction, and it will stay on that southwesterly direction. So then the question is, if it gets to these mountain areas where it spends the winter, what is it that makes it suddenly decide to return? And how does its brain change 
in order to be able to find its northerly route. And it turns out that's very dependent on temperature. If it only experiences warmth, it won't make that change. But if it experiences a few days of colder temperatures, then its biology changes again and its brain starts sending messages that it should begin to fly north again. So I found this to be absolutely amazing that we now know so much more about these phenomenal trips that these tiny little insects take. How many generations typically does it take to go from Mexico to up to Canada and back to Mexico? You know, that's a good question. Let's make that a trip that's the other way around. Let's say from northerly parts of North America all the way down to Mexico and then all the way back. First of all, usually the same insect will fly from Canada or northern America all the way south and spend the winter there. Then when it comes down, usually it will start to mate and lay eggs either in northern Mexico or maybe Texas. It usually doesn't go all the way back up to Canada. And then it's the next generation that slowly makes its way up from northern Mexico or Texas a little bit further north and then a little bit further north again till it gets back. Monarchs don't follow rules. You know, they haven't read the law book. So they're very individualistic. You may find it has been shown through these tagging experiments that every once in a while you might find an insect that's tagged in Canada that will go all the way down and spend the entire winter up in those mountains. And then for whatever reason, maybe it finds a favorable gust of wind or something, the same insect will fly all the way back up to Canada. That's not a good thing, by the way, because it needs milkweed in order to be able to thrive. And the milkweed in Canada most likely won't be available to it. So it'll be a non-productive insect. The best scenario is these insects, all of which have funneled into Mexico from the central part of North America, they will mate and either stay in northern Mexico or optimal, the scientists think, is for them to mate and lay eggs and stay in Texas. So if the butterfly does stay in Texas and mates and lays eggs, and if the temperatures are good, maybe it'll lay three or four or five different batches of eggs, then that butterfly will die. But the butterflies that emerge from the eggs that this insect laid then will make their way up and they will stay maybe in Kansas or something like that. Then the next generation will make its way up. That's how the butterfly has evolved to be most efficient because it needs to have that milkweed and there's no point in going to Kansas if there's no milkweed when you get there. I had heard about monarchs and their reliance on milkweed and also knew that milkweed was poisonous to humans and a lot of other animals, but it's actually poisonous to the butterflies as well. I know. Isn't that, isn't that ironic? I mean, talk about what, what a sad state of affairs. So first of all, let's explain that a lot of butterflies can live on one plant and one plant only. And that is definitely true for monarchs. They can only live on milkweed. Fortunately, there are many, many different species of milkweeds. I don't remember, but there's a lot of different species. So in most places in North America, the monarch will find some species of milkweed. So the female monarch will lay her egg, usually, but not always, because they're individuals, on the underside of a milkweed leaf. 
after three or five days, the caterpillar will emerge. First of all, it will eat the shell because it wants that nutrition. And then it will start eating the milkweed leaf and chomp and chomp and chomp away at the milkweed leaf. It can only eat milkweed. It can't eat anything else but milkweed. And the terrible sad fact is that the very milkweed that it has to eat because of the poisons it needs to ingest will sometimes kill it. Sometimes the milkweed sap with the poison in it is so sticky that the little caterpillar might get his legs stuck on the sap and not be able to get free. Or even more ironic, it's chomping away at the leaves and it's so sticky that it get, its jaws get shut and it can't open its jaws anymore. Isn't that a terrible story? So huge numbers of these caterpillars die and, and never go beyond caterpillar stage, which isn't necessarily bad, by the way, because remember we talked about a nature the nature's nest. Other beings will eat those caterpillars and thrive because of them. Other insects, other birds. So this is just how nature is. But if the caterpillar is lucky, he will go through all his different stages, which are called instars, and he will get to the point where he will make a chrysalis Inside the chrysalis, the caterpillar will make what we think of as a magical transformation away from the earthbound plebeian caterpillar stage and emerge from the chrysalis as a butterfly, which we like to think can fly free. So why does the caterpillar have to eat all this poisonous milkweed sap? It turns out that the caterpillar, of course, ingests this poison and birds, for example, may come by, and if there's enough poison stored in the caterpillar's body, the bird will take a maybe a little nip, and, and it tastes this poison, by the way. It's not only poisonous and toxic, but it tastes terrible, too. So the bird will go, yeah, I don't want to eat that, and the caterpillar will get free. So this thing that kills it is also what protects it from being predated upon. And it turns out that the butterfly, when it emerges, still has this poison tucked away in various parts of its living being so that if a bird takes a bite out of a butterfly, it will get that same disgusting, poisonous taste to it and it will leave the insect alone. So it's a protective mechanism that also tends to kill at least half of the beings that ingest it. It's a tremendous irony. You know what? It's kind of like if you love oranges, but you accidentally take a bite of the orange peel. I'm not going to eat that. I thought that was a delicious orange. This tastes terrible. It's kind of like that. It's, it protects it in that way. Most of the book does feature on the adult stage of butterflies, and we don't really spend a lot of time with caterpillars. Are there any other interesting caterpillar facts that you came across that you'd like to share with us? One of my favorite stories, and one of the favorite stories of a lot of readers, there's a group of butterflies that are colloquially known as the small blues. And they're called small because they really are small. You have to really hunt to see them. And they're called blue because they're bluish. Some of them actually look more gray, but they all fall within this group. And what's interesting about these insects, these butterflies, is that in order to survive, they commit fraud, especially as caterpillars. When they are caterpillars, they stand on the ground. They're on the ground. They're earthbound. And they pretend to be what they're not. For example, there's one species that scientists have seen 
able to lure in ants and it will coax the ants to come in and then the ants will go and protect that little caterpillar from this group of small blues, protect it and keep other predators away from it because one of the caterpillars seems to secrete a sweet kind of, I don't want to call it a liquid, maybe a goo, maybe the goo is the best, a sweet goo that the ants love to eat. So they will take care of this. It's kind of like farmers taking care of a cow. You know, we want to take care of the cow because we want the milk. The ants will take care of this caterpillar because they love the secretions that the caterpillar can make. But there's another caterpillar in this group that actually convinces ants that are coming along to pick it up. I say it kind of stands out there and hitchhikes. And a certain species of ant will come along and say, oh, this must be part of our ant nest. We'll carry it off and take it underground and take care of it all winter long. And that's exactly what the ants do. They pick up this hitchhiking caterpillar and take it into their ant nest and look after it until the caterpillar by the way, feasting on ant larvae as it's underground, emerges as a butterfly and flies away. So scientists have wondered, why do the ants do this? What is it? And some scientists now think that the caterpillars are secreting clues that make the ants mistake it for the queen ant of the group. They're mistaken. They think this caterpillar is actually the big cheese that runs the show and they take it home and look after it as though it were the queen. Pretender to the throne. Exactly. That's that's great. A pretender to the throne. So the, so these caterpillars will pretend that that's, this is their throne and the ants will buy into it. This is what is most amazing to scientists. The ants actually buy into this fraud and say, sure, we'll take you home and feed you and yeah, you can eat all our larvae. Human beings play a large role in the story as well. And there's Many fascinating people involved in the, the study and collecting of butterflies. But I think we should look at someone who happened upon one of the first records of butterflies. And it's the pioneer woman in 19th century Colorado, Charlotte Colpin Hill. How did she make an impression on the field? Well, you know, I love the characters that I came across in this book. Maria Sibylla Marion from the 1600s, who essentially, beginning at the age of 13, founded the science of ecology that we have today. But Charlotte Copen Hill was a woman after my own heart and also much beloved by the paleontologist of this federal land. She was a pioneer girl who met her husband and got married at the age of 13. And I think he was equally young, not that young, but still young. And they went off to the mountains of Colorado, where they began homesteading in this particular area that, unbeknownst to them, was a wonderful, thrilling site for finding fossils that had been preserved in this area. They laid down their homestead in an area that had once, millions of years ago, been a huge lake. And the lake had silted up over time, as lakes do, you know, layer after layer of Silt goes into the lake bottom, and eventually the lake dries up, but the layers of silt are still there. We see them as kind of shale. They're not really very firm rocks. So they started their homestead right in a valley way up in the, in the mountains. It was really unbeknownst to them. They had no concept of things that happened millions of years ago. In those days, people thought maybe dinosaurs were as old as a million years, but probably not that old. 
they began digging in the earth. And when they would dig in the earth, they would dig up this kind of rocky stuff. And then they would split the layers of rock because everybody loves to do that. I remember doing that when I lived in that kind of area as a child, you split it open. And she started seeing all these amazing forms in that area, in the Colorado Rockies. At the same time, back east in Boston and New York and all of that area, scientists were beginning to get really interested in fossils and trying to understand what had happened to the earth over all this time and how the earth had changed from age to age. And they would uncover fossils of animals that no one ever had seen before. You know, Thomas Jefferson was fascinated by this. He was convinced mammoths actually still lived in America somewhere. But they had begun by Charlotte Copenhill's time after, well after the Civil War, they had begun to understand that these were animals that came from ancient times on Earth and disappeared long ago. So Charlotte had how many kids? I can't remember, seven or nine or something. A huge number of kids in her mountain homestead cabin. We think that she put them to work. And they began collecting these fossils because the scientists would come out and they would want fossils and they would pay money for these fossils. So she began and her children began digging for fossils in this silt area. They split open this page from the Earth's book, this shale, and they found this perfect butterfly that turned out to be tens of millions of years old. She kept all these things. And when the scientists would come by, they would say, what do you have? She'd show them. And, and one of the scientists actually saw this amazing fossil, which is now at Harvard, called the number one butterfly. That's what I call it in my book. That was maybe the world's only perfect or nearly perfect butterfly fossil from long ago. So that's how she became famous. Now, you mentioned Maria Sibylla Marion, who came quite some time before her, and she was born in Frankfurt and what was then the Holy Roman Empire. She was on the leading edge of studying the natural world. Yes, she was, and that was a complete accident. You know, she never intended to become a leader in the world of science, but in those days, in the 1600s, I start that chapter off by explaining that women were routinely burned at the stake for being witches. So women were not really respected or allowed to do very much. They weren't allowed to go to school, for example, or to publish or, you know, they were pretty much under the thumb of the men in the household. Maria was fortunate enough to be born into the household of a publisher. In those days, individual people would publish books in the print shops that they owned in their own not in their living space, but in their own properties, in their own houses. And so from a very young age, Charlotte, somewhere around the age of five or six, began learning the art of filling in, painting some of the beautiful artwork in the books her father was publishing. I'm sure it'll make sense to you that if you think back to the 1600s, there was no such thing as color printing. But her father sold catalogs of flowers. So he wanted to show what this flower, if you bought this bulb, what would the flower look like? Someone in his shop would draw the flower, and then it would be Charlotte's job to actually paint in the flower. And it was really important that she paint the flowers and the leaves in the right colors because people were buying a product. It wasn't art. It was a product. And people making the purchases needed to see exactly what they were buying. So she became really skilled from a very, very young age 
at this kind of artwork, this, you know, what using watercolors to create beautiful pages. Fast forward many years until she's about 13. Girls are not allowed to just go out of their house and hang on the street corner with other girls or anything like that. That would be absolutely forbidden. She wasn't allowed to wander at will anywhere, but she was allowed to go out into her mother's garden. And at the same time, science had made this huge breakthrough called a microscope. It wasn't anything like what we think of as a microscope today, but it was something that allowed you to see the natural world with more detail than you would have been able to with only your eyes. And it was also a fairly inexpensive instrument, so Charlotte's family could have afforded it. She began using this microscope. It wasn't really a magnifying glass, but we can think of it as kind of a magnifying glass. She began using this microscope to look at the little creatures that she saw on her mother's plants in the gardens. She became really, really interested in caterpillars, of all things, on the plants. And she saw that the more closely she looked at these caterpillars, what we might, at a distance, we might just say, oh, that's a green caterpillar. When she looked closely at it, she saw that this caterpillar actually had a lot of detail. Maybe it had spiked hairs. Maybe it had little dots of gold all over it. So she began drawing these caterpillars that she saw, first in her mother's garden and then other other places. And she also noticed that these particular kinds of caterpillars would be eating particular kinds of plants. That was a real breakthrough because people hadn't realized that. They hadn't realized there was organization out there in nature and that a particular kind of caterpillar would only eat a particular kind of plant and that it would make particular kinds of leaf damage on those plants. So she began drawing that, and then she took the research even a step further. She began drawing the chrysalises that these caterpillars made, and then she began drawing the butterflies that emerged. As incredible as it sounds, until Maria Sibylla Marion came along, people had no idea that specific caterpillars would form specific chrysalises out of which would emerge specific butterflies. To them, nature was much more helter-skelter. An example that I um, give in the book is people believe that sometimes a woman can give birth to a rabbit. You know, these things could happen. So they had no idea that nature was as dependable as it was. She began drawing all these pictures on an entire page. She would show the caterpillar show the plant, show the leaf damage, sometimes show the chrysalis and show the emergent butterfly. And she did this on page after page after page. And of course, as we know, science doesn't mean anything if you don't publish. So nobody would publish her work because she was only a girl and only an artist. But fortunately, she had grown up in the world of publishing. So she decided, fine, I'll make my own book. And she did make her own book, but a small tome. And she made it and published it, and it became a bestseller all around Europe because it was the first time anyone had used scientific evidence to show that there was order and organization in nature. In other words, she showed that there was ecology in the world and that things fit together. And then she took a big research trip to South America 100 years before Alexander von Humboldt did. And it's amazing. Did she actually inspire Humboldt with her travels? I suspect she did, but I don't know the answer for sure. 
You should call the author that wrote that great biography of Humboldt and ask her. We don't know a lot about Maria Sibylla Marion because nobody thought she was very important for quite a long time. Now there are a lot of scholars in Europe who are looking into her more deeply. But she certainly seems to have inspired Darwin, and she certainly inspired a lot of other people that we know who had her books. I love the story of how she went to South America. She eventually became very famous and had her own money, which made her pretty unusual as a woman. And she decided she was tired of living in a world where women were treated so strictly. So she moved off to Amsterdam, which then, as now, was a very cool place to live. And she began doing her art and her research in Amsterdam. She met a wealthy woman who had collected butterflies from South America. And she invited Charlotte to come over and look at the butterflies. And Charlotte loved the butterflies, but she was also very frustrated because these were just dead insects pinned to a board. You know, what does that tell her from her point of view? I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me. What does this insect, what does this insect actually do? What does it eat? How does it fly? So the only way to find that out was to go to South America. So at the age of 52, she sold all of her art and everything she had, and she bought boat tickets for her and her daughter, and she got on a boat. She went to South America to study the butterflies of South America. This was the first time that, you know, there had been research done, but it was always sponsored by some king or some corporation or something like that. Charlotte just went because she said, I have to know the answers to these questions. So she and her daughter went. They meant to stay for five years, but she got ill. People think she probably had malaria. So she only stayed for two years. But when she came back, she had done enough art depicting the butterflies of South America, the caterpillars, the plants that they use, the chrysalises and the emergent butterflies that she came back. And she made another book. And this book was huge. I mean, physically, it was very, very large. All this art was hand-painted by her and her daughters. And she published this book again. And it became another bestseller. And she did very well with it. Screenwriters, please tell the story so more people around the world can learn about this fascinating woman. Uh-huh. I would love to have known her. In more contemporary times, you do dedicate the book to a couple of men, and one is Omero Gomez Gonzalez. Tell us about his tragic story. Well, we don't know a lot of details. When I went to look at the butterflies in Mexico, where I went, I actually met him briefly. He was a man who had done a lot to organize his village, El Rosario, help them get on their feet, help them get some of the services that they needed. And he helped them organize these trips where tourists could come and be taken by people from El Rosario being led up the mountain uh, for a small fee to the areas where the butterflies overwinter. So now anyone can go there during butterfly season and be, you'll be welcomed by people and you know, very nice facilities. There's food there. There's toilet facilities, if that's what you want. And then you can walk up the mountain. It's a very pleasant path. A lot of it's paved, not all of it, but it's easy to walk up. It is at 11,000 to 12,000 feet high. So if you are not used to that, you might have a little bit of a difficult time. I live at sea level, so it was hard for me to walk a mile up there, but it was very worthwhile. So at some point last winter, he was murdered. Nobody really 
knows the circumstances of his murder, but the suspicion is that he upset the powers that be because he was trying to protect the butterflies. But there may have been other reasons also. No one really knows for sure. But I wanted to honor him just because he was so dedicated to conserving this area of Mexico where these butterflies need to stay. Not they want to, they need to stay. There's nowhere else for them to go. And the other person that I dedicated the book to was Lincoln Brower, phenomenal scientist who began researching monarchs about 60 years ago. And when he found out how marvelous they were, along with his research, he began a lot of conservation campaigns to make sure that the wonderful migration that we all love today didn't disappear. I talked to him on the phone. I was going to go meet him, but I'm sorry to say he was elderly. And before I could get there, he passed away. Well, I would have loved to have met him, but I still want to honor him for the wonderful things he did. Going from these two people who have done so much to help in the world, stupid to do this, but I have a silly question I want to ask. And it's, do you have any thoughts on butterfly tattoos? <laughs> um, I don't have too many thoughts. I think butterfly tattoos are, are fine. I, you know, it's one way to admire the butterflies. Another silly question. Your name has been shared with a couple of other notable people in American culture. There was yes. Wendy O. Williams, a singer of the Plasmatics back yes. in the 1970s. Yes. And yes. now the talk show host and media personality, Wendy Williams. Yes. Has that been difficult for you in your professional career? It's been terrific fun. When I was younger, I worked at a daily newspaper and I would call somebody's house and a kid would answer the phone. And I said, you know, so-and-so, no, she's not here. And my mom's blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, tell her Wendy Williams called. They go, oh. Oh, no, that, not that one. <laughs> There's a lot of us. Some of us are actually nice. That would not be me. Um, <laughs> there was Wendy Williams, the Olympic diving star. And there are a couple of serious Wendy Williams authors who write about electricity and that sort of thing. I think it's great. Someday I want to have a Wendy Williams club and have us all get together and have a party. Have you landed on a topic for your uh, next book? I am. I'm going to do a book about hiking and walking. I wanted to do something different, something that would get me out of my office and away from the computer. So I'm going to go for a walk and it's going to be a long walk too. Thank you and take care. All right. Thank you so much. Wendy Williams is the author of The Language of Butterflies, How Thieves, Hoarders, Scientists, and Other Obsessives Unlock the Secrets of the World's Favorite Insect. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.